I can do things that wear it without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. And anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get the whole show now, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just joined us for an exciting voyage to discover the who, what, why, and how they did it via in-depth discussions with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and with me, as always, is theme park designer, master planner, and spatial storyteller from Storyland Studios, Mr. Mel McGowan. Where are we off to today, Mel? Well, Freddie, I'm super excited about our show today. This is the first of a two-part interview with former creative executive at Walt Disney Imagineering, Tom Morris. Tom's a good friend of mine and a truly unsung legend and hero who was part of the second generation of Disney Imagineers who created Epcot and Disney parks around the world. Uh, We finally got a chance to uh, break away from a project we're working on together and had a chance to sit down with Tom to pick his brain and hear how he's approached the design process from ride layout and master planning through creating castles from scratch. Yeah, that's awesome. So for all of our Disney fans out there, this interview is bound to surprise and delight. And if you're part of the themed entertainment industry, hearing from Tom is like a master class in theme park design. You won't want to miss this. Here we go, folks. Keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat because episode two is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Wow. Tom Morris. Uh, What a cool interview we got to do right here at Storyland Studios. I mean, the guy was involved with everything. You know, I call him Professor Tom. (laughs) And, uh, you know, above and beyond the interview, we had a chance to get our entire design team and and have a little bit of an intro to uh, kind of both his book and a class that he's actually taught uh, both at Imagineering and uh, to other groups uh, based on the alchemy of Imagineering. And again, mind blown, face melted. Yeah, uh, yeah, that guy uh, is uh, definitely uh, a stud, I mean, <laughs> to say the least. He's going to talk about it in the interview, but I mean, he starts off as a balloon seller at Disneyland attractions. He like, and then they call him over to the big, the <laughs> the big leagues to work on Epcot. I mean, what a what a classic start to a career. Well, the you know the thing about Tom is he's really such a humble guy, you know. But uh, again, from starting off as a kind of a draftsman to uh, you know model making to uh, being a, an overall art and creative director, really coming under uh, Tony Baxter's wing and and uh, learning from some other just greats uh, in the industry like Claude Coates and stuff. Um, again, the only guy that I know that I can call a friend that happened to also be a creative director on two separate. Uh, Disney theme parks yeah, that's uh, around the world just blows me away. Yeah, I mean, he's he's been involved in everything. I mean, practically every uh, thing that's modern, he's had a a, a touch in. So I'm just really excited. Uh, to, today, he's an experienced designer, Disney historian, and uh, creative consultant. That's how he came here to Storyland Studios and shared his story with us. Well, he's also kind of a Indiana Jones archaeologist <laughs> of, of theme parks. Literally, that guy is digging for the buried bones underneath yeah, yeah. Uh, New Orleans Square. Uh, and again, <laughs> it's just amazing his his genuine passion that he's been able to maintain uh, throughout his life as both a, a fan and a creative. And to, again, deal with all the political ups and downs and the roller coaster rides uh, within 
a, a corporation like Disney and to, to come out uh, still, again, just as passionate, just as big of a fan and uh, just as creative as uh, when he started as a kid. So Mel, I wanted to ask you, retro blue sky designing here, um, dreaming backwards. So beyond the parks that you've been involved uh, with the design, I mean, like starting from scratch as the, in the Disneyland parking lot, building an entire resort and uh, new brand new theme park. Besides that, like if, if you could go back and have been part of a design team at any theme park or attraction anywhere in the world, what would that be for you? Tough one between, uh, you know, Marvin Davis and the original uh, magical little park that a daddy wanted to, you know, make some memories in with his daughters. Um, I would have to say, though, probably the scope and scale would have, would have been part of that transition from Epcot the city to Epcot mm, the park. Yeah. And I'm going to cheat a little bit to say if I could be part of a, uh, another blue sky just for fun. Again, the opportunity of uh, kind of similar to what we did, like looking at the parking lot in front of Disneyland and right. turning that, unpaving the parking lot and putting up Paradise to do that <laughs> for the Epcot parking lot today, I think yeah. would be quite an opportunity. And I know they're, you know, kind of looking at some of that, but the idea of integrating a, uh, an in Berm uh, hotel that kind of carries that idea of living in this community of tomorrow uh, and in, integrating kind of some of the retail dining entertainment. I mean, it just seems like a, a field of dreams just waiting to happen. So I can't wait because it's just too good of an idea to, to not happen sooner rather than later. So uh, yeah. that, yeah, that, that, that truly would be a great, great thing to be involved in today. I mean, I, 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 I think the same thing, you know, thinking about uh, Disneyland being there uh, from the beginning, um, you know, thinking about, I think about like, Pirates of the Caribbean is a fantastic attraction. It's one that's always fascinated me as a kid, but to have thought through drawings from Mark Davis drawings to what is actually there in animatronics just blows me away. I'm sad to see it change a little bit. But anyway, that, that that's beside the point. I'd love to be there at those places. And that's what's cool about talking to Tom Morris is you get to kind of be at the beginning of some really interesting attractions worldwide. Uh, that's what's fun about talking to talking with Tom, his career is so many Disney attractions, more than I think he even he could count. Uh, the first half of this interview, this episode that we're going to listen to right now is mostly a deep dive into Tom's personal history, his journey from being a Disney balloon seller to creative lead on entire theme parks uh, around the world. The second half starts getting into ta how Tom and the folks at Imagineering approach projects creatively and pursue greatness in design. Uh, so if you're a big Disney fan, this is the episode you're really going to want to dig into because you're going to hear about Tom's amazing career. And if you're a themed entertainment professional, uh, when the second half of this interview comes out, you're going to love that deep dive because uh, Tom really gets into it. Either way, I think you're going to want to take time and listen to both episodes because it's not every day you get to spend a couple days, a couple hours listening to one of the masters of the craft. So. Well, it's a great intro to, uh, you know, kind of an intro, again, uh, uh, taste test summary of uh, where we're going with the podcast, really. Again, of covering the entire process from blue sky to building, from dream to dedication day, uh, from, you know, again, programming, throughput analysis, feasibility, uh, to master planning, all the way through, uh, you know, infield art direction. Uh, and waving arms, you know, yeah. and and so it, I think again, it's just a I couldn't imagine a, a better uh, chapter one and two of of this journey. Yeah, I I'm as excited as you are. I mean, I love this. We 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 get to hear from a master, and uh, it just inspires the work that you and I even get to do even today. So, without further ado, you ready to jump in? 
Affirmatory. Let's jump in to our interview with Disney Imagineer Tom Morris. Well, we are uh, pretty excited to have Tom with us today. Uh, if you don't know Tom, he's uh, uh, a seasoned executive creative director with uh, Disney Imagineering well, over several decades. Uh, retired. He doesn't look very retired to me. He's a very young, sprightly guy here. Um, but Professor Tom has graced us <laughs> with his presence today with our uh, spatial storytelling team here at Storyland Studios. We're in the midst of a, of a theme park, Blue Sky, and getting ready to move from master planning into creative development. And we thought, who better than uh, Professor Tom to, uh, <laughs> to, to share, oh, feeling to, old. To share I'm, uh, some... Uh, <laughs> I'm spanning the decades, and I'm a professor. <laughs> So, um, you know, you've been around the block uh, a few decades. Um, What year did you actually start at Disneyland? At Disneyland, I started in 1973. I was in high school. I was a freshman in high school, so I was 14 years old, uh, working for one of the third-party concessionaires that that ran the balloons. So I was a balloon seller. And, um, And then when I turned, I think, like late 17, I was absorbed into Disneyland and became a ride operator. And um, not long after that, started at Wed Enterprises in 1979 um, through a strange twist of fate. And um, the park experience was great. It was a great lead-in. Yeah, you to... got to tell me, what, where, where were you at? What attractions? Uh... <clears throat> I, for attractions, I was working um, Tomorrowland, so Submarine Voyage and the Autopia, <clears throat> and then sometimes People Mover. I think I just trained on Space Mountain. Mm. Um, a couple times I worked on America Sings, but it was mostly Autopia or submarines. And Jim Cora was the manager. Mm-hmm. Wow. And Steve Llewelling, I don't know if you know Steve, <laughs> he was one of the supervisors um, in that area. John McCoy, a yep. bunch of folks that ended Blast up from also, also uh, you know, growing with the company. So yeah, both Freddie and I were also former cast members, and as as we all know, there's a lot of cast members out there uh, uh, around the world. But uh, there's actually not a lot of cast members that make that segue and transition over to uh, WED or now now known as Walt Disney Imagineering. How did that happen for you? They started gearing up for <clears throat> Epcot. You know, like around 1977, I think they hit the start button on. Epcot Center and on Tokyo Disneyland at the same time, hmm. and they would be opening, you know, approximately the same time. And so they needed people, and um, they had already had a career planning and development program where you put your resume in, you know, and if you have a portfolio, submit your portfolio. And so it went into a file, you know. I had no intention of <clears throat> working. Um, anywhere until I had finished college. And so I was, in a, you know, and I was slightly undetermined as to exactly what I was going to do. I was torn between the worlds of film and animation and Imagineering. So I put, a, you know, a portfolio in that's, you know, I could write. I was a very good writer. That's what I was majoring in in college was communications. I was taking film classes. And my illustration and architecture and stuff had kind of, you know, gone to the wayside as I focused in on this, you know, more communications and film. But they had my portfolio from high school in that file and they needed drafts people. (laughs) And I don't think they even cared about my illustrations. They'd go, oh, here's someone who can draft. He's a pretty good draftsman. It was three years of drafting in high school. 
Um, and I, you know, had architectural knowledge, but I was not heading towards architecture or anything like that. But I had done some pretty cool illustrations, concept designs that had kind of an international flair, I guess you could say. So I think they were thinking World Showcase. But they actually ended up putting me in the show set design department. George Windrum, the manager of that department, needed people, I guess, uh, more than anybody else. And, and I wasn't like training myself to go into architecture. So they thought it would be best to put me in show set design as an apprentice. And so I left my job at Disneyland thinking that this would be, you know, a six month job, maybe, maybe a year at the most, and then go back to Disneyland. And I was in the process anyway of transferring from Cal State Fullerton to I think I was going to heading towards UCLA. So you're like 18, 19, early 20s, something like yeah. that? Yeah. 19, I think, or 20, 20, I think, when I start at WED. Wow. <laughs> Weird. And there I am. <laughs> I'm, uh, and, you know, and you start off doing kind of grunt work, which I think is a good thing. I think it's important to, you know, have people do labeling and, <laughs> you know, mounting and presentation work, except I didn't do a lot of it before I was already starting to do, you know, little minor um, design exercises, uh, you know, designing a phone booth for Doris Woodward for the Land Pavilion and then doing some set design for the World of Motion, um, working with, I, I wish I could say it was just working with Claude, but it was Claude Coates, but it was working with about six people who all fancied themselves the art director. I thought, wow, is this how it works here? And it was, I think, an unusual case, you know, because sometimes you'll have a little bit of a tangle with two people who think that they're kind of in charge. But in this case, there were six people who I think thought that they were in charge of this. Wow. And all six of them would periodically come by and look at I look at what I was doing. <clears throat> I think I really only listened to Claude, but um, there you know it was just funny. It was a parade of, of folks, you know, and, and several of them were very important folks. One of them was Mark, and Mark Davis did not have any um, pretense in terms of you know he wasn't pretending to be running the show, but you know he would look at what I was doing, and that was nice. Um, and Ward Kimball, I think, uh, stopped by once or twice. Oh. Uh, and then there were, you know, there were some art directors that had come over from 20th Century Fox, and they were somehow involved in the project. Wow. And so they would come by, and and it was just, it was very mundane um, stuff. It was the Greek temple for uh, that scene at the beginning, and the and the Chinese pagoda, and a couple props and stuff. Spaceship Earth, or uh, no? This was World of Motion. World of Motion. Yeah, and. Um, and then Claude asked me to come up with an idea for a scene, which was the balloon, hot air balloon scene. So I did some concepts for that. And some of it made it in and some of it didn't. And what made it in? The buildings, I think. Uh-huh. The buildings and the general staging, I think, of the balloon. But I had, <clears throat> mine was too subtle. You know, just going to the point <clears throat> that we were talking about earlier, it needs to read quickly. Yeah. I, I was trying to be kind of too clever mm. with the scene. And so I had the hot air balloon heading towards a church steeple, which was very pointy. It had like a soldier or something <laughs> on the top with a sword. And I think there, I can't remember what animal was in the basket, like goats or something. And the goats could see up ahead that this was going to happen, but the guy <laughs> waving couldn't see it. And um, I think Mark took a, look at, took a look at it and said, well, you know, it's not really, you know, it's, it's okay, but you know, let's put a pig in there, and you'll see that right away. And 
So I think that's what they did. I, mm. I think it ended up with a couple pigs in the basket. Rather than goats. I think. <laughs> and, the, and the idea of the steeple about to pop the balloon yeah, yeah. went away because it was just, I think, too, too much to crowd into yeah. the scene. Um, you know, but they were right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I forgot all about that until I, I discovered those drawings just a couple of years ago when I was uh, cleaning my office. Um, and then I think not long after that, I was working with Tony on, because suddenly the Imagination Pavilion. Tony Baxter. Tony Baxter showed up on the radar was um, the Imagination Pavilion, which wasn't on the opening day schedule originally, but Kodak came with um, enthusiasm and money. Yeah, and, suddenly, and a check. <laughs> and a check, yeah. And they, were, they wanted this thing on opening day, so Tony chose me to be on the team with him initially to start doing some layout concepts. Yeah. And... Um, Rick Harper was on that team initially. Bob Rogers. I always remind Tony, remember Bob was on that. Wow. Uh, Tad Stones. A whole bunch of interesting folks um, initially on that. And um, I would do, you know, I would contribute to concept ideas, but I wasn't a very fast illustrator. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd, I'd once a day, maybe a sketch or something, and they weren't all that great either. Um, and eventually Tony asked me to start working on a layout for the ride because it looked like this thing was going to have a ride on it. So I didn't know anything about ride layout yeah, yeah. <laughs> other than having an opinion about what I liked. And um, so, you know, I started out kind of that way, just doing some ride layouts. And, and then there was no architect available. All the, archi- all the in-house architects were already assigned to projects that were starting to get behind schedule anyway. So there was no architect, so I was laying out the whole pavilion. Wow. And, um, you know, I did no scale, and I did no space. And so, um, you know, laid out the, um, started laying out the ride. There were, you know, zillions of different versions of it, and the image works. And there was also a little, a very important park garden play area Mm. along with the 3D theaters. And, and that, it was a lot bigger than what we ended up with, you know, on opening day in terms of that little park was going to have a lot more. It was going to be like optical illusions mm-hmm. and all sorts of interesting um, things in that park. And so, you know, just did the usual months and months or weeks and weeks anyway of layouts. And there was a, <clears throat> a version of the attraction I remember that we began to settle on. Uh, and once the story began to get fleshed out more on that attraction, you know, it seemed apparent that we were going to have a turntable at the beginning and a turntable at the end. And that turntable was to allow you to be moving through a space and then suddenly not be moving anymore through a space yeah, yeah, yeah. and then start moving through the space again um, while keeping up a Have that ever capacity. been done before? No, not to my knowledge. And so let me just get this straight. <laughs> you were assigned to do ride. You've never done ride right. uh does uh, layout, dis- yeah, and you're gonna lay out something that had never been done before. Correct. <laughs> That's yeah. great. <laughs> there was gonna be some kind of theatrical the element um, in there, <clears throat> except it was weird because, like, I could do these calculations in my head or on my calculator really quickly about what the throughput, because that came from my attractions yeah, background. Yeah. I always paid really close attention when I was a ride operator. I was always kind of paying attention to the machine. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of machine is this? And why can't this machine go any faster? Have just enough where industrial the, engineering somewhere yeah, in the back. Where there. is the hang up in this system that it can't spit out these rockets or these submarines or these <laughs> 
Autopia cars any faster. And you'd always find what, you know, eventually what that limiting factor would be. And so, you know, and I, I taught myself how to divide by 3,600, which is what you need to do to come up with THRCs. And shockingly, no one else in my department did that. I think that they, there was always a reliance that someone down the stream does that part of it. It's like, no, I'm going to figure this out now because I don't want to have to do this a thousand times. You know, only a hundred times will be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so pretty quickly, um, you know, I, I was working with a, a guy from Pico. The, all the Pico coordinators came from attractions. And in the case of Epcot Center, they came from Walt Disney World attractions. Mm-hmm. And so these are guys who were supervisors and leads on attractions. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, his name was David Todd. And so he had some faith in me that I knew what I was doing. And Tony had some faith on me in me because he knew that I knew what was cool to wiggle through in a ride, yeah, you know, yeah. to twist and turn through in a ride. And um, we came up with all these different kind of loading ideas. You know, the turn the loading was going to be on a big turntable like the people movers at right. Adventure Through Interspace at one time, and that didn't work. <clears throat> anyway, the, the key thing was that the story was was... Um, really begging for a sit-down introduction that would suddenly put you into a ride. Right. And they knew, Tony knew pretty quickly um, that he wanted this kind of Professor Marvel kind of a character. And I think um, either Steve Kirk or Jeff Burke had had mentioned the dragon, you know, having a dragon sidekick. And then Tony came up, I think, with the name Figment. But these, you know, so Dreamfinder and Figment were really born out of Steve Kirk and Tony Baxter. And then I think really gluing this whole thing together was Andy Gaskell, who was borrowed from Walt Disney Animation. He had been working on The Rescuers and all those films that were under development at the time. And he was an incredible, is still an incredible artist. And he was only with us for like a year or two before he went back to the studio. And he really kind of glued that attraction together uh, in terms of, you know, listening in the story sessions about what we were thinking and having you know a literary set, a set section of the ride and highlighting the arts and sciences and so he did these fantastic renderings um, that I have recently looked at again you know after all these years it's like man these were great and they even had Marvel incorporated wow. into them um, so they were you know they were uh, looking at the future a little bit somehow yeah somehow um, and so as it began, you know, to congeal, then it looked like, okay, so we need this intro thing uh, at the beginning, this turntable that would sit you down, in effect, for three and a half minutes. And then at the end, we had the same thing, a wrap-up. Yeah. And the ride went upstairs, and then after you went through the second turntable, the finale, then you were released into the image works, right there into the image works. You didn't have to walk up a flight of stairs or take yeah, an yeah, elevator. Yeah, yeah. And that was too expensive, it turned out. That was my first, like, um, you know, exposure to reality yeah. of, like, uh, you've come up with something that's a little bit too, you know, too expensive, basically. Um, so it was scaled down a little bit. And then we got an architect on board <laughs> um, to make the thing, you know, a little more. Um, compact and, and reasonable. and But I did, you know, before the architect came on board, I um, the model shop needed to get going on some kind of a concept mm-hmm. thing. And so um, I provided the drawings uh, 
kind of de facto architect. Like, you know, I had to provide some drawings that would help model builder build this thing. So um, Dan Gouzet was another fantastic illustrator. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was brought on board on imagination. And he's the guy that came up with a great idea of the silver halide crystals. So those two pyramids that you see, those mirrored pyramids are inspired by silver halide crystals, which are the key component of Kodak film. Yeah, of, it's, of a, yeah. it's still, film. It's still pr- uh, promoting Kodak film, yes. rather, whether you know it or not. That's right. And so he came up with that idea, did a beautiful rendering, and then I worked on drawings that made the geometry of all that fit together in a way that the ride could lo- you know, load out of that and accept the image works inside. And um, so I was doing, you know, in effect, I was doing architectural planning for that and provided those drawings to the model builders and Tony was happy. And then we got, finally got the architect on board and um, it was, you know, learn by fire, right? You just yeah. throw you into the fire. An amazing and, training camp experience for attraction totally. design and architectural design. Yes. And there were so many people, you know, who had opinions. And so I was very, um, you know, intimidated by all of that. Mm. And, um, there, there were so many, there was just a lot of great talent. I, I have to say, as a project architectural design, there's not a lot of buildings designed in the 70s and early 80s yeah. that were intended to be futuristic right. and modernist. That uh, there was a still, magic book still inspire, you know, kind yeah. of uh, inspiration. I uh, did find a book called The Fantasy of Architecture that was um, nice, one of the oft used go to books at the library there, you know, so you'd look at the library card. And it, <laughs> and it was all it was checked out by all the greats. You yeah, know? Oh, that's so cool. And so those built, you know, that book influenced a lot of the buildings sure. that um, ended up in Epcot Center. And there was, I think, there was something in there that was somewhat similar to Journey into Imagination, if I <clears throat> if I'm not mistaken. Um, but it was, yeah, it was a great time, and there was just so many great people. John Stone was another one. He took Andy Gaskell's illustrations and turned them into models. And um, so, yeah, just, so you're a young guy at this time. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of of any listener that might be wanting to get into um, into creating uh, interesting spaces, whether right. it's architecture, or theming. Right. Um, and I know that at the same time, right across the water from you, Joe Rody is yeah. uh, cutting his teeth on the Mexico Pavilion, yeah. doing, providing sculpture there. Absolutely. And earlier today, you said something about mentoring mm-hmm. is a key part of the next generation. And and so you were there because a mentor had pointed you in that direction or people were trusting you with these things. Tell me a little bit more about that, Um, trusting trusting the young guy to come up with something amazing. Well, sometimes I think the trust is by default. You know, you have no choice. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. You know, uh, it's amazing to think that at that time, you know, not a lot of people knew what WED Enterprises was. They had started a large um, advertising campaign to get, you know, a, a recruiting campaign. They had that Mickey Wants You was a full page in the <laughs> LA Times. <clears throat> but people generally didn't, you know, I don't think it was a, a, a job or a role that a lot of people aspired to. And it was not anything that was associated with making a lot of money necessarily either. Um, so it was kind of like, if you wanted it bad enough, if there was something you could do, you could get in there, you know, get your foot in the door. And that was, my thought was just get your foot in the door and get some experience and then go back to school and get, you know, finish your degree and then, you know, maybe come back. But I kind of thought in the back of my head, well, once they're done with Epcot, then they're 
probably done, mm-hmm. except for little things, you know, for the parks every now and then. So um, I just tried to, you know, get as much information from people like Mark Davis and Claude as possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, it wasn't always easy, you know, because a lot of people, you know, wanted to have lunch with them. And so I was just thankful for the few times that I, you know, could spend some time with them and, and, um, get some great information. But Tony was really good because he had been mentored by Claude Coates. And so I think Tony saw the value of that. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, decided to take me under his wing and and help me out on, uh, <clears throat> on the layout of this attraction. And in the middle of the development for that, we also started up on Fantasyland for Disneyland, wow. the redo. <laughs> so then I was thrown into... Um, Redoing the Peter a little Pan different ride. scale than uh, different F- scale Epcot Future World. Yeah, right? From- it, was, it was kind of a similar thing, uh, and I was so wanting to be more involved in the facade design. Mm. You know, the design of the facades. I was very opinionated about what was going on with the, yeah. <laughs> those designs, and uh, but I just you know there were other people. There were too many other people. They were a little bit better than me. You know, they were certainly more skilled and faster. I don't know if they're all of them. Their imagination was maybe as ripe as mine, but I just so wanted to be involved. But I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't good enough, I guess, at the time um, to compete with them. So I stuck to laying out the Peter Pan ride um, and redoing that, figuring that out. And um, my favorite ride of all time, by, it's a by great, the way, great ride. Yeah. And we made it a little bit longer because it was only like a minute and a half, I think, you know, until the until it was expanded for that 1983 job. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we put some bigger scenes in. and So I worked on that a little bit. And then I think in the, oh, and I, I think I worked on the mural. I did a concept nice, design yeah. for the mural. But um, Kent Elofson came along and did a much better, you know, cleanup, I guess you could say, of it. Because I wasn't really Mr. Animation, mm-hmm. necessarily. And um, so and along that way, did you get to see any of the work at Epcot opened up? Or did well, you? I got sent out to the field <laughs> for Epcot. So in 1982, I flew out. I was relocated for a year. Wow. So it was supposed to be for half a year. And I think it was April of 82. And then spent a year. And my role was to keep an eye from a show set standpoint on the Imagination Pavilion, but also to help out on everything else, anything else. And so um, George Head was leading the um, kind of the production group, field um, installation production group out there. And we had worked already, you know, together in the show set design department. We both were hired at close to the same time. So um, he became the den mother of the relocated um, show set department of which there, you know, ended up being several plus some um, brought in from the Florida wed office, including Dave Minichello. And so we went out into the field every day and every day there was some surprise or some, you know, Oh my God, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do about that? And so spend kind of the first half of the day sniffing those out, yeah. measuring, taking Polaroid pictures inside the Kodak Pavilion <laughs> or whatever, wherever there may be an issue. <clears throat> and then you'd spend the second half of the day doing change order um, directives. But you would had to solve the problem, 
you know, not just point out the problem, but what are you going to do about yeah, right. the problem? And it could be anything. There were just so many things. And I think I have a lot of those in a file somewhere. I think I kept some of those. <laughs> I remember 15 years ago asking myself, why in the hell am I keeping these? And I almost chucked them. And yeah. I thought, I don't know, maybe my opinion will change. And I'm so glad I did because it really is a story. You know, yeah. It tells a story of what working in the field yeah. is all about. And what so, it takes to execute this stuff yep. um, beyond the yeah. blue sky illustrative. Yeah. So, um, and then it came to a point where there was some actual art direction involved, arm waving and, you know, but um, we had Skip Lang out there eventually and Bruce Gordon came to help out um, with the installation too because he was kind of the foreman for the building of the sets back in California at the Tahunga facility. And so it was this kind of remarkable group of people that had all kind of landed on this attraction. And I look, you know, now... In perspective, it was such a tiny part of Epcot Center. You know, it was a tiny part of its success. There were so many people and so many talented people involved in the whole thing. And people come up to me and they ask me all these questions about Epcot. I'm like, I'm sorry, I really only know about <laughs> yeah. my little piece of it and little it, it bits was, and pieces. It was one of the, the kind of most uh, imaginative, whimsical, Disney-esque kind yeah. of components. Of but it's funny because it's like, Epcot. you know, I, I remember being kind of amazed when I started at WED that like I'd ask people about things that I really loved at Disneyland. Like, how did they do or what's it like or what were you guys thinking or what was there yeah. before? And there was kind of like this, like, why, why do you want to know? Like, yeah. it's, it's you know, because they weren't Disney fans. Right, right. They were awesome designers and experts, but they, it wasn't like they were fans. Yeah. You know, it's like it was work. And they enjoyed the work, <laughs> yeah. and they liked working with Walt Disney and with the Disney company after Walt. But they seemed like surprised by my fascination with the things that they did, mm -hmm. and they seemed so modest and like it was just you know yeah. it's just a pirate race. Just what I did one day from between nine to five. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so and then I be started to become that way with the Imagination Pavilion. Like I was more interested in the other right. pavilions right. at some point because right. I just was so used to yeah the whole composition the whole yeah. project was such an epic yeah. scale yeah but, were you ever were you ever able to write it and oh, yeah. enjoy it as a without saying oh there's missing paint there there's no. a that no, <laughs> no, or even no i could enjoy it but i can never do it without saying that this was missing or that yeah. was done wrong yeah. um, so here we are three four <laughs> decades after yeah. you know the opening of epcot center still pretty unprecedented in scope and scale in terms of the the theme yeah. park kind of uh, environment not sure if anybody would dare try to do something larger certainly right. uh what, what do you think uh epcot means i guess is, well is i think it's a you know it was such a bold um thing to do the disney company certainly didn't have to do it mm -hmm. they could i think i think back then you know i think they could have expanded magic kingdom and expanded disneyland and gone ahead with Tokyo, Disneyland. There, I don't think there was anything driving, other than the guys that took out, took over after Walt passed away, felt somehow obligated mm -hmm. to to do something in some way, and that you know whatever they do should should make a profit. And I don't think this whole kind of multi day thing. I mean, I, that might have been part of it. I think it was just like, okay, we're going to build this park and make sure it doesn't lose money. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, I look back and I go, I, 
it's kind of that was kind of ballsy of them to yeah. <laughs> go ahead and and build this park and build it the way they did. You know, it's very big, very ambitious on a spectacular scale, and to tackle topics that you wouldn't think of um, approaching these days. And it, it, there was a tinge of altruism to it, mm-hmm. which is I think what appealed to me um, in the seventies. You know, like. In high school, what are you going to be when you grow up? What are you going to do? And I grew up in an affluent area, not affluent. Yeah. Um, you know, my dad was a high school teacher, and yet we were living because you could back then. But still, like most of the people in the high school were back in the days when high school teachers could live in Newport Beach. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and then everyone was being. Um, primed to go off to Ivy League schools or to USC or to UCLA. Yeah. And I, like, okay. And, you know, because you're supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer or, a, you know, a business person. And um, I thought, well, this is really interesting. This, you know, I like Disney. I like Disneyland. You could get a career there. It doesn't look like you'll make a lot of money, but it looks like you could do some good. Yeah. And so, and, and, I think the Disney company did a remarkable job of exposing their ambitions to the cast members and getting all the cast members on board. I mean, cast members at Disneyland are excited about a project that's going on in Florida. Yeah. Because they did these sizzle reels that made it seem like Disney was doing something. They're changing the world. Changing the world. You're casting this vision of a world as it could be. Exactly. Right. And the CEO of the company, the CEO's, um, Don Tatum and Card Walker would give these kind of pep rally speeches about if Disney doesn't do this, who is going to do this? We're the only company that is equipped to do this. You know, wow. Walt left yeah. this legacy of people that could think this way yeah. and could bring it to reality and could make it work operationally um, and get the world excited about it. So if we don't do it, who is going to do it? We're we're um, not doing our job if we don't do yeah. it. Wow! In essence, is what they were yeah, saying. Pretty inspirational. I stuff. wondered if that was what they were really saying decades <laughs> later, and then I found these documents. You know, I found uh, they would give them out. You know, the, they would hand out the speech. Yeah. And you go, oh my god, he did say that. He really did say that. <laughs> this like really square person. Yeah. These really square guys. <laughs> really, when you think of it, <laughs> they were pretty square. Yet they were thinking about. You know, altruistic yeah, things. Yeah, progressive hippie kind of stuff. Yeah, progressive hippie <laughs> kinds of things. And, and that, rallying corporate America to, yeah, to fund it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that appealed to me. You know, that's like, well, I, I kind of want to get tangled up in that. And um, I think there were other people. You know, the, I know there were other people because I've talked to them. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, that's what I was thinking too. You know, yeah. other people who were working at either Disneyland or Disney World and they kind of got the call to action. And, um, thought, you know, this is something that's meaningful. It's not, and you know, think of what the alternatives back then for careers were. It was like, you could go into defense. That was like one of the big, (laughs) you could build bombs. (laughs) Right right there in Glendale, right? Right right there in Burbank, Glendale, Long Beach, lots of, you know, defense industry jobs, or you can go into healthcare. I don't know. It's just like, everything seemed really boring except for film, animation, (laughs) or Disneyland, you know? 
This episode was brought to you by MyStudioSpace.com. MyStudioSpace is a group of fun and thoughtful online professionals who want to make you happy by simplifying and personalizing your website with powerful and cheap web hosting and domains. If you're not web savvy, talk to MyStudioSpace. They rub off. Honest. Call 407-701-7577 or go to MyStudioSpace.com to get started. So let's, what's that, let's chart that flight trajectory right. from, you know, Imagination, Pavilion, Epcot, through to New Fantasyland. Mm-hmm. Um, where, where does that take you to uh, designing entire lands, two entire parks? Um, pretty when pretty we finished, epic journey. Yeah, when we finished Epcot, a lot of us came home to Glendale and there wasn't much going on. Um, they were finishing up the Horizons Pavilion that was still big and maybe some Tokyo Disneyland stuff. And I actually went back to Florida, I think, to fin- there was a huge punch list of stuff for the Imagination Pavilion. So I worked on that probably for a few months. Graphics, this is where I got into graphics. Um, we had tried to do image works and as much as possible without relying on graphics. You don't want to litter, you know, things with too many graphics, but we didn't have enough graphics or the graphics that were there were insufficient. So um, one of the punch list items, including um, finishing some of the sets that hadn't been completed, was a graphic program for the pavilion. Wayfind, a combination of wayfinding and instructional for the things that people didn't know that they're supposed to put their hands yeah, under right. the pin screens or how to use the um, magic palette, which was a precursor to Photoshop. It had to be simple. Yeah. And we didn't give them any instructions, which wasn't adequate either. So I had to come up with these instructions using Dreamfinder and or Figment uh, for all of them or wayfinding because people didn't know they were supposed to go over there instead of over there. And so got involved in graphics, which was kind of interesting. And someone re- reminded me that, you know, those graphic, the instructions that you did for the Magic Palette were probably the first tutorials for uh, <laughs> so graphic true. illustration yeah, ever yeah, done. Right. Seriously. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's ironic because I never <laughs> would touch Photoshop because I hated it because <laughs> it was too hard to figure out. Yeah. <laughs> so I stuck to, you know. Um, practical drawing and pencil trace paper trace paper yeah and then scanning um that was kind of ironic but uh, so then when that was done like by the summer of 83 we started looking i think at tomorrowland that was something that always started and stopped and started and stopped so so there was a um a version of tomorrowland that i was working with with tony um to get an upper level and there was, I guess we had already started talking to Lucas because we were talking about a Star Wars thing, a Star Wars attraction. It wasn't a simulator at the time. It was a ride through. And that was going to replace the Autopia. Mm-hmm. And then I was doing concept designs for what for what Tomorrowland might look like. So that was my one foray into kind of Tim Delaney land. <laughs> right. You know, I couldn't do it as good as Tim. But, um, but, you know, there were some cute ideas in there, but I don't think they wanted to do you know it was expensive i think my idea is very expensive <laughs> i was inspired by john hench's um that yellow rendering yeah. with space mountain in it and yeah. multi-levels right, right, yeah. so i i really wanted that to bring that idea yeah. to tomorrowland um and then i and then um they started layoffs so i expected to get laid off 
and I started taking night classes at Art Center yeah. and getting ready to, you know, um, go either there or UCLA or Cal Arts, wherever it was going to be. And I didn't get laid off. I think it was because I was probably only making $300 a week or something like that. So it was like, you might as well keep them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. And so I somehow stayed. And then um, I think also about the same time started working on Splash Mountain. So Tomorrowland was kind of off and on. And then Splash Mountain came. And that was because Dick Nunes really, really wanted, had always wanted to do a log ride at Disneyland. And there had been a couple attempts of attempts done. Um, and now it was thrown into Tony's court. And so Tony asked me to look at, you know, where you could put it without tearing anything else out, tearing out any other attractions. And it was, that was a hard exercise. Yeah. And so we had actually put it behind New Orleans Square, behind the train station. And you would go either under or over the train station and into this kind of, you know, down south yeah. area. Next to New Orleans. Yeah. Probably like where Indiana Jones is now. No, uh, on the no? other side. Oh, okay. Where the chiller plants still are. Mm. Um, you know, where the chilled water and all that. Is that the reason it's not there? That's the reason <laughs> it's not there. It was too expensive to either relocate it or deck over that. It wasn't expensive to get people up and over the tracks. It was expensive to work around those mm-hmm. facilities. Um, <clears throat> we tried other locations and it just would never fit. So it almost... It, it it was about to go away as a project because it wow. was too expensive. So it was to, never intended to get people up to into Creator Country to, to well, terminate it, that cul-de-sac up there. I think they considered take either putting it behind Critter Country, where again they required relocating some facilities back there, um, or taking out the Bear Band ride, which you know operations didn't want to do. Because it was still doing decent business. And I think Tony had just, I think at that point, had kind of closed the idea, like, okay, let's go on to something else. And I said, "One, let's look at one more location. He goes, well, where? You know? And I said, well, that berm between the Haunted Mansion and the and Critter Country, it's like, <laughs> there's no land there. And he was kind of right, you know, as the crow flies. He looked down at that and was like, how are you going to do that? And I worked on it and figured out a way to weave that track under and over the railroad track (laughs) (laughs) and just barely miss the haunted mansion and all of that. And I, you know, it was almost as a joke or just a challenge, but it somehow, (laughs) it somehow worked. And so then it was back on, you know, and then about that time, Eisner, I think had come on board. And so... Wow. Michael bought it, and they were off and running on that. And then I started working on Indiana Jones a little bit, mm. and that kind of also was another thing that would stop and start. Tomorrowland would stop and start. And while all that stop and starting was going on, <clears throat> they decided to give me some training down at Disneyland in SQS. So I worked with Kim Irvine oh, wow. for at least a year. And that was kind of nice because I was still living in Orange County at the time. So I only had to drive to Disneyland. <laughs> A little better commute. Yeah, and I designed the first um, churro wagons. Because <laughs> churros was something that was only introduced in 1983 or 84, and they had literally bought 
the wagons that from, from Iapa's trade show. Trade show. <laughs> Absolutely, that's literally what happened. Wow! And they were a huge success. So I was like, we need six of these. So I designed a Fantasyland churro wagon and a Frontierland <laughs> churro wagon and a Tomorrowland churro wagon, which was inspired by Rolly Crump's kind of you know designs. But they were all plywood. You know, they were ply, thick plywood, like three quarters plywood, I think. I'm gonna have to look for some pictures. Of attached that. to those sure, carts, yeah. and then, and they, those only lasted like a year or two until they fell apart and built the so you real go permanent from ones. Buying a churro wagon to the best piece of Disney architecture in history. Kind of. <laughs> yeah. Beauty's Castle in Disneyland Paris. It was pretty close in time. That's yeah. quite a quite the, a great was a, responsibility. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> There was a little. You must have done a really great job with those churro <laughs> carts. There was a little uh, um, period of time again with Indiana Jones, and I was working on a branching version of that attraction that would have different tracks uh, that you would go uh, on to and see different things. So there'd be three or four different ways. Yeah, I remember to, some of the ch- the talk was that the the branch could go into the Jungle Cruise, could go. Uh, well, there was around. that too. There oh, was okay. the, there was the version that took the single route ride and integrated it with a mine ride and the jungle cruise all kind of sharing the same wow. space that was really cool and brian jowers did a really cool um illustration of that um then i went to europe because i had um fell in love with the impressions de france film at epcot and started you know like on my breaks i would go what <laughs> Because I was there until April 83. Epcot opened in October, but the journey into imagination didn't open. The ride didn't open until March. Mm. And that was also fits and starts. And so um, sometimes there'd be some downtime and like, okay, we're waiting for something to happen. Vehicle cycling, so I can't get in there. So I'd go to the France Pavilion. Soak up some air condition. Yeah, soak up some air condition. And I loved that film. I loved the music. Yeah, And I'm like, someday I'm going to go to Europe. That's great. (laughs) Because I had never been out of the country. Wow. Mexico doesn't count. So (laughs) Tijuana doesn't count. (laughs) So uh, finally, I kind of came up with an itinerary, and I was going to go to Europe. I was going to go through France and Germany and Switzerland and Austria and England for one month. Yeah. And I'd saved up my money, and I got my frequent flyer. I don't Somehow I had frequent flyer miles on Delta. And (laughs) so I'm going to go out there on Delta. And um, I did. I went with Dave Fighton, as a matter of fact. We we went as a team out there and um, fell in love with Europe, you know, and I kept stumbling. I think Dave didn't come out there until a week after I was already out there. And in that week, I had already discovered Rotenberg, which I had never heard of. Never had no idea what Rotenberg was in Germany. Didn't know it was like this real life fantasy land yeah. um, space and stumbled on it. You know, just had no idea from one spot to another I was going and I'll, and someone said, oh, you should see Rotenberg. Okay. And I'm like, oh yeah, I should see this. Yeah. <laughs> I stayed in Rotenberg. I changed my plans that night, stayed there in a little hotel that looked like Merlin's Magic Shop at Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just tickled, you know, like $25 a night or something. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. Like I would pay $300 a night to be staying here and I'm paying 25 and it was dumpy. It was really dumpy, but it didn't matter to me. And um, there were just all these really great discoveries that were like that. And I took lots of pictures 
Oh, we also like stumbled when uh, Dave joined me when we went to Salzburg and we stumbled on a castle that we had all to ourselves. It's like, it's a public castle. You can go there, but no one was there but us. And we're just going through all the rooms and taking pictures and it was really great. So I came back and, you know, gone through these villages and Mont Saint-Michel um, and a couple other really, you know, really cool places and England also. And I came back, I had all these photos and I showed them to Tony. Here's what I, you know, here's he's like, oh, these are really cool. Okay, so end of story. He starts, um, uh, you know, uh, selecting who his team is going to be for Disneyland Paris, and I'm not on the team because I'm busy with Indiana Jones or something else. So, um, but I want to, you know, I want to, I want to be part of this Europe Disneyland thing. But um, everyone was selected for that, and then. Um, the guy who was the show producer, Bob Kurzweil, was the show producer for Fantasyland, and in some um, uh, organizational, you know, rearrangement, they wanted Bob to go down to Disneyland to do some SQS work, to, to I think lead SQS for a while down there. So Bob went to Disneyland, and that opened up a, a you know, a space for the show producer for Fantasyland. And I think my qualification was I had gone to <laughs> you Europe. You had some great picks. And I had some vacation. great picks, yeah. <laughs> great. But, um, so you're going to be the show producer for Fantasyland, but it's basically already designed. Bob, you know, kind of laid it out. And it's already determined what attractions are going to be in it and what restaurants. And um, we, ha- we already have too many people working on the castle. They can't figure it out. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's too many people jumping on that. And it um, and the money is burning on that, so don't work on the castle. Just get you know what's been started um, up and you know wow. get it going. There weren't too many opportunities for ideas or anything like that. But then uh, Michael's like, I just went through a maze. Michael Eisner, yeah. <laughs> I just went through a maze and it was really great. Here's a book on mazes. Why don't you put a maze in? So. Um, it, it, that was Michael's conversation so to Tony. <laughs> and then Tony, you know, handed the book over to me, and I'm like, okay, we'll put a maze in because there was also a maze. I had gone yeah. to a maze on that previous trip, right. so oh, everything is working out. So that was kind of cool. And um, it's make a long, really long story short, the all the different people that were working on castles weren't doing it. It wasn't working out, and so I said, Tony, give, you know, I'd love to have a chance to drink because I, in my head, I think I know what it needs to be. Yeah. And um, he, I think he was still reluctant. He wasn't reluctant to have me try it. He was reluctant to have the appearance that there are too many people yeah. spending time and charging to designing the castle and nothing's coming out of it. But it was kind of funny because um, Tony's description of what he wanted, people weren't understanding. And so that's, I think, what I had as an advantage was I I understood Tony speak. Yeah, yeah. And Tony um, didn't want to, obviously didn't want to replicate the Florida castle because it was too close, really too literally close to what the castles that are very close to Disneyland Paris are like. So it wouldn't be that, you know, that special to Disneyland Paris. So I, I got that part of it. But he also didn't like the kind of crispness of it. It was like overly, it was too architecturally serious mm-hmm. and he was looking for something a little more playful and a little more weathered 
Um, and everyone agreed that, you know, everyone was working on a castle on a hill or a yeah, castle yeah. on a mountain or a castle on a rock <laughs> or a castle with a big waterfall yeah. coming off of it, you know. Um, so that was something that I think everyone agreed would make was it. Was that that Mont Saint-Michel kind of influence? Yeah, not quite Mont, Mont Saint-Michel, but that was what was in my mind because mm-hmm. I had just been there. Um, and I don't want to denigrate anybody's work, but it was <laughs> what the other folks were working on was clearly not going what. Tony had in mind or what corporate or what, you know, management would want. So Tony was like saying, you know, like a castle, like in Figaro's fishbowl, or I I don't know if he said Figaro's fishbowl, but he said like, you know, a castle, a playful castle, like you'd see in an aquarium. And so someone had done one that was literally like the one in in Figaro's (laughs) fishbowl. And like, well, that's disappointing. (laughs) And another one was like too awesome it was too you know like um feudal <laughs> feudal or something it was yeah too much rock not enough castle and too masculine you know it was like um it was like a castle that you'd see out of the black cauldron yeah yeah foreboding and- foreboding and a little scary and and then another guy was doing one that was too close to the one in Paris, or I mean the one in Florida. So I don't know, I'm like, I was going nuts, you know. So Tony, please. And um, so I did help him put together a style board. Let's help these guys come up with, you know, some inspiration, like what types of castles. So I dove into all these storybooks and I dove into the um, film um, versions, you know, the Disney animated film versions, which weren't very helpful, but. Um, and did a collage, you know, kind of. Here's a here's a pastiche of different castles that um, could be inspiration. And I think they wanted to get that in front of Michael soon, mm-hmm. just to get the the idea of it should be on a mountain or a rock of some sort or a hill. And so that was my role. And then somehow out of that, when once Michael bought that off, I think he he said, okay, take a pass at it because I think he liked this board that I put together mm. he just liked the feeling of the board you know and I had like picked all in his mind what were the right mm-hmm. analogs yeah. Yeah. for it out of so many different sources and so finally I got kind of like a, a chance to to do that and uh, not being a great illustrator I was really just doing this as a pencil you know just a yeah. line pencil almost like a, a layout drawing and animation you know not not even any shading or anything, and then working it backwards with a silhouette. So I did do a gouache silhouette thing. And um, I was almost too embarrassed to show these because they just weren't like, all the other artists are so good. Tim Delaney and you know yeah. even Joe Rohde from his painting standpoint, you know, he's better. Um, all these guys are better than I am. So I had this kind of weak looking, <laughs> except the design was good. You know, yeah, it was a good yeah, design, design, but this wasn't a good, you know, selling, it wasn't a, marketing art by any means but i think tony liked it and then so we started building a model of it and um i was working with an architect mark lesko and john kasperowicz i don't know you must know john yeah his office is here and so at some point i was coming down here too uh that was later though i think after we kind of established basically what the castle was but john added to it um and did all the great ornamental design for it all ornamental detailing for it Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, we were working in the model shop, the architect and myself and a couple of people from the model shop just taking wooden dowels. Yeah. And that's how we would confirm 
the location of where these things should go because you can't just do it in plan only in plan and then cross your fingers and hope that when it comes up yeah it's going to look good um i insisted that like you know we always go out to the model shop it doesn't have to be all finished just cut a dowel and put a cone on top of it just for placement yeah for the arrangement of the towers just to make sure that this thing looks good as you walk around it and um, so that's how we did it. Uh, yeah. So cool. yeah. Well, you said back to that silhouette thing that you showed us earlier with yeah. uh, Jiminy Cricket, right? And being able to see it from the right angle is yeah uh, that it's crucial. Yeah. yeah, and then you know as it becomes dimensional, you got to keep checking it, and so it's not just cylinders and cones; it's mm-hmm. boxes and trapezoids, and and you want to make sure there's little there's some airspace in there, a little lacier than I, I think what Tony didn't like about the Florida castle was it's kind of a big box and then it's arranged nicely with towers onto that box and so um, he wanted something a little airier or I wanted I can't remember who wanted it but um, something a little lacier and porous just a little more porous so yeah. that you're imagine and I definitely was when to put the stair the spiral staircase that was something that just came out of playing with drawing mm-hmm. and um like, ooh, that'd need to be neat to have a spiral staircase come down. And I always liked the uh, flying buttress at Disneyland and, and the bridge. flying buttresses on the, you know, on the cathedrals in Paris and everything. So it's got to have a flying buttress. And how about some wisteria on it? Because I saw that in some castle. And so it was. I really wanted to bring a little bit of different castles around France. Um, so I wanted it to have a French pedigree, but it just couldn't look like any castle that was ever in France. But you look at it and you go, well, it's French. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's storybook, you know, so it has that fantastical quality. And it's French. You can tell there's enough, you know, DNA on that that you can tell that it's French. Oh, that's cool. Well, Tom, it seems to me like you're the castle guy. I mean, I don't know of any other guru that... Uh, uh, I would entrust with uh, the definitive Disney castle. I mean, it is one of my favorite pieces of uh, Disney architecture. I've got to ask you, I'd put you on the spot, uh, just because of the, some of the characteristics of that that castle uh, seem fundamentally different from, for example, the the Shanghai mm-hmm. uh, castle, uh, or even for that matter, the uh, the uh, castle enhancement surgery that's going to be happening at. Right. Uh, Hong Kong Disneyland. Right. What's your castle uh, enlargement? Yeah. <laughs> What's your take on uh, well, those? Well, I reserve judgment until I see. You know, because see it live. Yeah, you really yeah. got to see because you know, uh, you just have to wait and see. Yeah. Um, I think that the thing that was important in the design of the of the Paris Castle was the working it out crudely with crude <laughs> shapes. Dowels, <laughs> cylinders, you know, um, early on to make sure it didn't drift into a, yeah. um, an area that started to get locked into and it wasn't right. So another reason to have a model shop and good people in a model yeah. shop. Mm-hmm. And so many different tools available yeah. nowadays with building information modeling. And That's right. Um, for better or for worse, it, it certainly can. Another beautiful results. castle recently in the, um, the live-action version of Beauty and the Beast. Oh, yeah. That, that's a beautiful castle. Yeah. And I don't know if it came out as much in the film, but you know, um, I was able to see the production art that they yeah. did for that castle. And it's like, oh, this is a beautiful castle. Yeah, so, you know. Take a look at that one again. Yeah. It's got, you know, it's, it's like, it's, you got to look at the 
castle and go, oh, I want to go up there. I want to go up on that balcony. I want to go through that yeah. door. You know, I wonder what's down there. And, uh, and they did that remarkably in the, beauty, in the live action Beauty and the Beast castle. So you must have done a bang-up job because uh, you're the only guy that I know that got handed the keys to not just one, but two entire Disney theme parks. I mean, do you know of any other Imagineers that actually I think were able so. to lead the creative direction on, on two separate parks? I think so. Of- yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I'm not the only one. And, you know, the two are, you know, I love Hong, sweet little Hong Kong Disneyland. You know, it's definitely the engine that could. And Disney Studios Paris, too. One day, I think soon, because they're going to put yeah. some money behind it. Yeah. But you know, they were they were there of an something era to establishing that kind of original DNA, minimum critical mass, yeah. that seed that can turn into a tree, that can turn into right. a forest. You right. know, and exactly. uh, I I do have to hand it to you because my my favorite theme park uh, memory experience. Um, by far is is experiencing Hong Kong Disneyland. I had adopted uh, my son Joshua from mm-hmm. a Chinese orphanage. Uh, he's uh, born deaf and he was in special needs, and I was able to kind of chase him around Hong Kong Disneyland one right. day right after it had opened, and uh, tried to tire him out before a red eye flight out of Lantau Airport. And um, mm-hmm. again, just uh, just a day full of pixie dust, uh, yeah. you know. And, and yeah. it, it really was to me. It was it almost was the closest thing I could experience to, you know, getting a DeLorean time machine going back to Disneyland 1955 yeah. and trying to have some sense of what the scale and uh, crowd level and right. charm and character of, of Walt's original uh, Magic Kingdom yeah, seems it was, like it could have been like in, in yep. those early yeah. years. Walking down Main Street, you know, as it was going up, it looked exactly like those pictures of Disneyland. You know, that picture of Walt, like, oh, yeah. looking down at the tracks <laughs> and... Um, I mean, it was that was a weird deja vu because it wasn't really a day. It wasn't a deja vu based on my real experience. It was based on photographs and things like that. And even had like buildings that aren't at Disneyland anymore, like the Beacons van line building on Town Square and a couple other little bits and pieces that aren't there anymore. Um, So that was kind of cool. But it's a really charming, beautiful, beautifully executed um, park and you know the only criticism was just more critical you know, more. yeah just just needs more and scale nothing and nothing was done poorly it all looks great you know it's all entertaining it just needs more yes and we want more too but we got to cut it there we've uh, got to save the rest of this for our next episode Mel what did you think so far uh, mine officially blown you know <laughs> Tom's a great storyteller it was so great to just hear him tell his own story. Yeah, it's true. In the next episode, you and Tom get into what's called the alchemy of Imagineering. Mel, why don't you give us a quick preview of what that means? Well, as I mentioned at the start, it really is almost like a taste test preview of where we want to go uh, on this uh, on this uh, podcast cruise of ours here of taking the entire process, the entire journey from dream to dedication day, uh, from blue sky to building. And um, again, uh, Tom has been there, has led efforts through that entire process. And uh, it's so fun to get into that with you. Yeah, that's great. Well, we got to wrap this up. It's time to get this leaky tiki back to the dock. Thanks, Mel. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. Our guest was former Disney Imagineering creative executive Tom Morris. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Tom K. Morris. Get access to more stories and interviews at ThemedAttraction.com, the world's most comprehensive site on theme park 
and theme attraction design. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at skipperfreddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Mel, Barry's known as the head salesman in these parts, but business has been shrinking lately, so he's offering a two-for-one special, two of his heads for one of yours. Thanks for listening, folks. <laughs>